Welcome, friends, to this episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. My name is Kevin Bax, broadcasting from Dallas, Texas. So, in this parasha this week, it is called Tot Maase, which means tribes and journeys. It is actual, actually a double parsha. So, we have two parshiot joined due to the calendar, which we have discussed in other episodes. And it is pretty interesting. You have four main parshiot that are read as doubles in non-leap years and are split apart in leap years where we have the extra month of Adar Sheni. And then you have several other parshiot that are doubled up, um, mainly due to the calendar. So there are different instances that we've covered before. We just experienced one when Shavuot falls on a... Thursday night, and I'm sorry, when, let's say Wednesday night, Thursday night, Thursday night, Friday night. No, it starts on a Thursday night, and the second day of Shavuot in the diaspora is on a Shabbat, which is when we end up doubling up uh, Chukat and Balak on those special years. So, anyway, uh, the calendar is a very uh, interesting topic, but not the one we're going to cover today. So, um, this week of July 14th through 15th, 2023, is Tammuz 26, 5783, when we read this portion. And it is the last one for the book of Numbers, Bamid Bar. So Matot, like I said, means tribes and is in Numbers 30, verse 2. The name of the second parasha is Masse, meaning journeys appearing in Numbers 33, verse 1. So Moshe gives the Torah about annulling vows directly to the tribal princes or heads. Hashem gives them license to war against Midian for putting together the disgusting plot of undermining Israel with fornication and licentious activity and temptation. Then the Torah portion tells about how the objects, items, and people after the war was won were to be distributed among the people from the people in the war to the Leviim and the Kohen Haggadol. Next, we hear of Reuven and Gad, or Gad, and also the half-tribe of Menashe requesting to live east of the Arden. They see these lands as being ideal for raising cattle, so Moshe was not happy with them initially. Then they all agree if they all three contribute to the rest of the tribes west of the Jordan, that this will be acceptable for them to return to the east side of the Jordan to settle. Now, last we hear of the 42 stops in the journey from Mitzrayim at the Exodus, the Yetziat Mitzrayim. And Rashi has some very interesting commentary on the 42 stops. Uh, he explains the grouping of the stops on the journey and which ones happened during which points in time. These are the journeys. Well, we have to ask why were these journeys recorded to inform us he says, of the kind deeds of the omnipresent. For although he issued a decree to move them around from place to place and make them wander in the desert, you should not say they were moving about and wandering from station to station for all 40 years. And they had no rest because they did, because there are only 42 stages. And obviously, if you average that out, that's barely one per year, just over one per year. Now, if you deduct 14 of them, for they all took place in the first year, before the decree, from when they journeyed from Ramses until they arrived in Ritma, 
from where the spies were sent, as it says, Then the people journeyed from Hazarot and camped in the desert of Paran, chapter 12, verse 16. And then in 13.2, he says, Send out for yourself men. And here it says, They journeyed from Hazarot and camped at Ritma, teaching us that it, meaning Ritma, was in the desert of Paran. So he, he says 42 minus, what did he say here? 14 would give us 28. Is that right? Yeah, 28. Okay, subtract a further eight stages, which took place after Aharon's death from Mount Hor to the plains of Moab during the 40th year. And you will find that throughout the 38 years, they made only 20 journeys. Yeah, 42 minus 14 is 28, minus 8 is 20. So Rashi says he found this in the commentary of Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan, which means the preacher. And that is from Midrash Agada. So Rabbi Tanhuma expounds it in another way. It is analogous to a king. Now, that he's, when, he's, when it says it, he means the journeys, the 42 journeys. And he says it is analogous to a king whose son became sick, so he took him to a faraway place to have him healed. On the way back, the father began citing all the stages of their journey, saying to him, this is where we sat, and this is where we were cold, and this is where you had a headache, etc., and that is from Midrash Tanhuma, Ma'ase 3, and Numbers Rabbah 23.3. So, then next, the tribal boundaries are delineated. Then 42 cities for the Levi'im are granted with measurements, and an additional six Arehamiklat cities of refuge are created for those who cause the death of another unintentionally. Sorry. No, it's interesting is last night I was at a Shabbat service and in this uh, building there is, uh, there are Hebrew signs because it's a Jewish building and there is a sign that says Miklat Lesa'ara and it, the translation was uh, a weather, sh or a storm shelter. Uh, I guess it's like a basement or a room with no windows, something like that. And it's interesting, the same word here, are hamiklat, means cities of refuge. So miklat is obviously the word for refuge. All right, so, and that's mem if you're a Hebrew scholar or if you just want to know how to spell it. It is spelled mem kof lamid tet miklat. All right, so it is a very interesting and unique part of the Torah, these 42 journeys, and Chabad.org, interestingly enough, has a great article called Cities of Refuge Demystified, which I won't go into here. I do want to add another interesting commentary, and I apologize, I can't remember the source, but the idea is that the 42-letter name of God was, um, was like a ladder of spirituality that Israel needed to climb out of um, their depravity that they uh, almost attained to the, the 49th level of impurity while in Egypt, or they had attained to the 49th level, and had they gone one more level down to the 50th, they would have been unredeemable, so say the Chazal, the sages. But there is a commentary that says uh, the spiritual ladder of climbing up all the way to Hashem uh, is 
42 levels because of, or, or 42 cycles, maybe it was, that they had 42 stations to root out the impurity. There's also, uh, which matches to the 42 letter name of God, each letter being a rung, obviously. But there's also an idea that there were 42 stations that they had to cycle through in order to uh, root out or convert impurity to purity in this area of the world. So again, I wish I could remember the source on that, but thought it was just kind of interesting. The last section of the main parsha, or of the parsha itself, discusses the daughters of Tzlofahad. Again, they were already brought up uh, one or two parashot ago, uh, parashiot ago, and they're brought up again as they marry husbands in the tribe of Manasseh, and they uh, are uh, compliant with the decree that they and their father, I believe, or had he already passed, uh, but that was made with Moshe. And uh, basically like the invention of uh, a commandment, I believe. Uh, I'm pretty sure that turned into one of the 613 meets vote, the decision to let the daughters keep their tribal land as long as they married within their own tribe. So their own tribe... Um, they marry inside of that, so their father's inheritance to them will remain among their family members. So, the Haftarah, the most important part of our program, which is what we're focusing on this year, 5783, is to capture the essence, a summary, and some sort of, of uh, gem or insight, understanding in the Haftarah, and especially the connection to the Parsha. Uh, now, just so happens this is now we're entering into this time uh, this week is the second in a series of three half to row that pertain to the three weeks of negativity where there is not a direct connection to the part to the weekly parsha now the th these three weeks of admonition are also called ben hametzarim which is from lamentations i believe it's chapter one where it says, all, my, all her pursuers have overtaken her, between the straits. Now, specifically, the three weeks tie to an important pair of dates, bookends, if you will. These two dates are two of four dates that are found in Zechariah chapter 8, and all four are fast days that are connected to Jerusalem and the temple. The, the fast called Som Gedalia is unique and deserves its own entire review and overview of the history, and it is connected to the temple in a special and unique way, which I hope to cover as Tishri approaches, because this fast, the fast of Gedalia, is on Tishri 3, immediately following Rosh Hashanah. It is a minor fast day, as three of these four are, and Tisha B'Av being the last and final one which is a 25-hour fast for most branches of Judaism. But in recent history, the conservative movement has inclined to end the fast in the afternoon after the Mincha service around 3 p.m. Now, I just learned about this custom, so I do not totally understand this shift in uh, observance, only that it has to do with dedicating part of the day to the appreciation of what we do have, since Israel is largely back in the hands of the Jewish people and the remnants or descendants of Levi as well. And the Jewish people, um, while they don't control the Temple Mount, have access to the Temple Mount and have the Western Wall. So there is this, and they're already rebuilding and um, re, uh, you know, redesigning 
the pieces that are going to be used in the service of the next and third and final temple. The next temple, which is the third temple, which is the final temple. So this passage, the Haftarah for this week is Yirmiyahu, chapter 2, verses 4 through 28, chapters 3, verses 4, and uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Uh, it is read on the second Shabbat after the 17th of Tammuz, which this year fell on July 6, 2023. The bulk of this portion is a long list of offenses against Israel for unfaithfulness and lack of gratitude and general rebellion. Now, the attachment to Assyria and Egypt is mentioned as Yehuda, uh, Judea, during its final stages prior to the Hurban, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the Beit HaMikdash. They went to Assyria and Egypt for help against the approaching Babylonians. The intense judgment is balanced with affirmation and encouragement to not lose hope. Now, Jeremiah 3 verse 4 talks about the nation calling Hashem father as they return to him instead of calling items made of wood their father. The verses that are read in the Sephardic tradition has a different ending. Hashem gives Israel terms they must follow if they are going to receive blessing and praise among all the rest of the world. Teshuvah is explained as them turning back to Hashem, but with complete, a complete vow of loyalty. They have to repent and get rid of all foreign gods and anything from other religions. Now the sages also see a connection to Hashem's promise to Abraham. Faithfulness leads them to Hashem. And consequently, the nations bless themselves in Abraham and also in Israel, which is appropriate since all of the tribes in modern Israel today call Abraham by the title Abraham Avinu, our father. So in essence, Abraham is symbolic in a physical way of the spiritual father Hashem himself. So this is the second or middle week of the three weeks of distress prior to Tisha B'Av. Now, during these three weeks, there is not an obvious connection to the Torah portion, which I mentioned earlier. Rather, it is connected to the season, a series of three rebukes and admonishments for three weeks in a row every Shabbat. The correction or punishments that God speaks through Jeremiah is also to be a reminder to future people and offspring in Israel that false worship and unfaithfulness to Hashem is pure stupidity and without repentance or tikkun, this behavior well, and I, I want to make it clear, repentance and tikkun are two different things. Repentance is turning back to God and saying, I'm not going to do this action anymore, ever again. And tikkun is the restoration, the correction for the damage that has been done during that behavior. So, uh, this behavior will be eventually answered with curses and sharp discipline if the, there is unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, the Jewish sages, the Chazal, compare the first word, in Yermiyahu chapter 2, verse 4, uh, where he says, Shimu, listen or hear to a group, since the verb is plural, to Exodus 24, 7, where Israel said at Sinai, Naase Vanishma, we will do, and oh yeah, then we'll hear later. By the way, what did we say yes to when we said Naase Vanishma? Uh, so that's like the, the take on it. Like, well, they said, we'll do, and oh yeah, we'll hear later. And what do we agree to? All right, so Yermiyahu also used, continues to say the word ech, meaning how, which is Aleph, Yod, 
final chaf in Hebrew. Now, how this, how that, he asked Israel, how they became a foreign vine instead of the true vine. Which reminds us of a story of Yeshua's words in the book of John. Now, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In John 15, verses 5 through 8. So let's look at that. So John 15, no, yeah, John 15, verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. Now notice, he is, as we talked about before, and we'll talk about again in a coming Torah portion, or wait, was that recently, in Baha'alotcha, we talked about in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 7, that the Messiah is called the branch, Hatzemach. So here he calls us a branch, because we're a branch of a branch when we attach ourselves to Yeshua. So this person is thrown away as a branch if they do not abide in me and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and as, and so prove to be my Talmudim. Just as the, as the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my mitzvot, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's mitzvot, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made malay, full, or shalem, complete. So, also, Rav Shaul, Paul of Tarsus, says in Romans 11, beginning in 17 to the end of the chapter, here I'll read it. All right, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, or meaning if they continue in believing, will be grafted in. For Hashem is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, meaning the non-Jews or the nations, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And it's interesting, he says, uh, contrary to nature, because it wasn't, it wasn't natural, or is it, it's not natural even now for non-Jews to move into a faith that is kind of by necessity we have to call it jewish because it, it, it it's god it's hashem it's the god of israel the god of the world and it's the faith and the messiah for everyone but the the 
adjective, the proper adjective that we use today to describe it, to distinguish it and delineate it against all or from all other, apart from all other faiths and religions, is Judaism. And in the, the, the day to come, the Alam Haba, the Atid Lavo, uh, the, the uh, Yamot HaMashiach, um, all the, the, the future times, those are titles for phases that even can overlap in the days to come, in the, in the Messianic age, in the Yom Shekolo Shabbat, the day that is all Sabbath. Um, we may not call it Judaism anymore because there will be no other idols. There will be no, I mean, no idols at all. Uh, no other faiths, there will be no other systems of religion. It's all going to be one, just like we, we pray in the Elenu. Here, I'll read the Elenu, in case you haven't heard it in English. This wasn't part of the original program, but here, I'll read it for you. Uh, this is, because this connects to what I was talking about, even though it's pretty far out until that field from where I started out. Alenu says, It is for us to praise the ruler of all, to acclaim the creator, who has not made us merely a nation, nor formed us all, as all earthly families, nor given us an ordinary destiny. And so we bow, acknowledging the supreme sovereign, the holy one who is praised, who spreads out the heavens and establishes the earth, whose glory abides in the highest heavens and whose powerful presence resides in the highest heights. This is our God, none else. Ours is the true sovereign, there is no other. As it is written in the Torah, know this day and take it to heart that Adonai is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. And that is from Deuteronomy 4, verse 39. And actually there are three quotes in Elenu from uh, the Torah and the prophets. Uh, but I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Then he says, then, then the prayer says, And so Adonai, our God, we await you, that soon we may behold your strength revealed in full glory, sweeping away the abominations of the earth, obliterating idols, establishing the world, the sovereignty of the Almighty. All flesh will call out your name, all flesh, right? All people, doesn't matter what country you're from, doesn't matter what land or continent you're from. Even the, what language you speak, even the wicked will turn towards you. Then all who live on earth will understand and know that to you alone every knee must bend, all allegiance be sworn. And that's interesting because that is a famous phrase, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Yeshua is Lord. And I don't have the, I'll have to look that up for you in a second where that is in the New Testament. But it is obviously not, uh, it, it's, a, it's a common theme in Judaism. It's something that dates back many generations. It wasn't a new phrase that the writers of the New Testament came up with. So that to you alone every knee must bend, all allegiance be sworn, that they will be they will bow down and prostrate themselves before you, Adonai, our God, treasure your glorious name, and accept the obligation of your sovereignty. May you soon rule over them forever and ever. For true dominion is yours, and you will rule in glory until the end of time. As is written in your Torah, Adonai will reign forever and ever. And as the prophet said, so that's from uh, Exodus fifteen eighteen, Adonai And as the prophet said, well, which prophet is it talking about? Talking about Zechariah chapter fourteen verse nine. Adonai shall be acknowledged sovereign of all the earth on that day, uh, or in that day. Adonai shall be one in the name of God one. And uh, it's a very well known uh, melody. It's a 
prayer that says three times per day. Okay, so let's find that other scripture real quick because I like to reference exact places in the Bible when referring to passages. Okay, so this is very interesting. This verse actually comes from Isaiah 45, which doesn't surprise me. I'm sure much of Elenu comes from, almost every verse of Elenu comes from a verse in the Tanakh. But in Isaiah chapter 45, Yeshayahu chapter 45, verse 23, the Lord says, I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. And we see in John chapter 1, the word is Yeshua. So the word became flesh. The word dwelt among us. And anyway, so Isaiah 45, 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. Uh, that means he can't come back. I, I would say that is almost like a prophecy that the Messiah had to die. If he's the word of God and the word became flesh, the Torah became flesh, the Tanakh became flesh, it will not turn back. It will not repent, probably not the right word to use, but it, it can't be reversed. So he had to come and in order to get off of planet Earth and into his new spiritually powerful resurrected form and body he had to be he had to die whether it be a natural death or homicide or murder like it was all right so continuing on that to me every knee will bow every tongue will swear allegiance they will say of me only in the lord our righteousness and strength men will come to him men will come to who he was just talking about himself so he must mean the messiah and all who were angry at him he was talking about himself in the first person, and then in the same verse, verse 24, he switches to second person. No, third person. Yeah, third person. So, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. It must mean Yeshua. And I know, you know the predominant view in Judaism is that the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 is Israel, but that can't be if you look at the verse closely enough, and especially in the Hebrew. So, continuing on, 24, part, verse 24, part B. And all who were angry, were angry at him, shall be put to shame in the Lord. All the offspring of Israel will be justified and will be, and will glory. Will justified and will glory. Hmm, I guess it's using glory as a verb. All right, so then the other place in the New Testament where it talks about Yeshua, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, we see... Uh, let's see, Philippians chapter 2, which we often refer to in this in these broadcasts. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9 of Philippians. Therefore, Hashem also has highly exalted him. Again, he's talking about, we're talking about God and talking about another entity, which is the Messiah, which is his agent. Therefore, Hashem also has exalted him, Yeshua, and given him, Yeshua, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. Well, who are those under the earth? Those in heaven are those who are uh, either angels or have already ascended and those on earth living and those under the earth. Well, those are either people who have died or the demons and dwellers underneath and that every tongue should confess that yeshua the messiah is lord to the glory of god the father that's interesting because in that last 
verse in Isaiah 45 that I just read. It said they will be, let's go back there since I closed the Bible, they will go, they will glory, meaning they will be glorified. I'm not really sure. Will be justified. So they'll be atoned for. Uh, I don't know exactly what this word is in Hebrew because I don't have the Hebrew in front of me. But it's strong 6663, 6663, and will glory, which is probably Kavod 1984 in the Strongs. So, very interesting. All the offspring of Israel. So, that could also mean in, incorporated nations that have become part of Israel. But uh, that is beyond the scope of what I was prepared to say here today. So, Let's go back to the olive tree. So as I was saying, and as I read in Romans 11, to the end of the chapter, Israel is the original olive tree. And uh, Rav Shaul does not talk in terms of a vine, but he uses this similar metaphor from nature with the olive tree, which I just read. Now, working backwards, we also see in Isaiah 5 that the prophet compares Israel to a vineyard. So let's take a look at that briefly. All right, so Isaiah 5, Ishayahu 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Yerushalayim and men of Yehuda. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then I expected it to produce good grapes? Did I produce? Did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it waste it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come upon it, come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And then he goes into... Uh, more about the vineyard and the uh, nation and the woes of the people against God. So, uh, another Yermiahu and Tisha B'Av connection is that Yermiahu is said to be the author of Lamentations, which is also called Echa in Hebrew. Now it's read in its entirety twice on Tisha B'Av, both in the evening after sundown, uh, as the day as the day begins, as the fast begins, and the next morning at the Shacharit service. So the custom is to sit on the floor rather than on a chair, not wear any leather because it uh, is connected to prosperity and. Uh, it's a time to feel poor and low and um, destitute uh, emotionally. Now, this evokes a position of discomfort, sitting on the floor, that is, as it is a day to connect with the destruction of both of the temples. But more than that, uh, the behavior that led to it, the lack of empathy, the um, three 
I don't remember them all in Hebrew, but sinat hinam, so unmitigated or un, uh, or un, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, baseless hatred, and uh, the the three main sins were idol worship, avodah zarah, forbidden relations, and uh, idolatry, forbidden relations, and bloodshed. Those were the three main sins that led to the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, and then the temple was destroyed, the second temple in 70 common era by the Romans, General Titus, and they destroyed it for baseless hatred. It was called Sinachinam. And they really, they, they say that this exile has been much longer than the last one because the specific sin is either ongoing or it has, and it has not achieved, uh, has not been completely rectified. Or we don't completely know what all of the sins were that led to the destruction of the second temple. So until they're known and rectified, this third temple cannot be rebuilt or built itself. Um, now, all that caused uh, the, uh, let's see, yeah, all of the sins and all that it caused, that caused it among the people and how they were treating each other are what we're supposed to focus on during the fast, which is to say very poorly uh, and in cruel and heartless ways, uh, they were treating each other in very poor, poor, they were treating each other poorly in very cruel and heartless ways during both temple times. Now, both of them were miraculously destroyed on Tisha B'Av, about 656 years apart. Like I said, the first one in 586 BCE and the second one in 70 Common Era. And that brings us to the end of this broadcast. Next week, we enter the book of Devarim and we will see the last Haftarah in the series of three as we approach the fast day of Tisha B'Av. Now, the last Haftarah comes from Isaiah, but more on that when we meet again. And please, God, with your help, Bezrat Hashem, on the next episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. And we never like to finish this broadcast without inviting you to make Yeshua the Messiah and the salvation of your life, as his name does mean Yeshua. So, I'll read from a famous passage that I have read from before. John 3, verses 13 through 16, 17. And no one has ascended into heaven, but he was descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moshe lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only firstborn son, that whoever only begotten, I'm not sure what begotten, I guess, born of man, gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved. Through him, he who believes in him, verse 18, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light unless his, uh, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practiced the truth and met comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So a little bit of King James words there, but we hope that you will still consider them, understand them, and that you will ask Hashem to bring your spirit to life 
in the name and the power and the resurrection of Yeshua, our Messiah. So, Bezrat Hashem, we'll see you next week on our next episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. Shalom.